welcome to Talking Property, where you get the inside information into what's going on in the Australian and Asian property markets from leading property and investment experts. Welcome to Australian Property Journal's Talking Property podcast. I'm Nelson Yap, editor and publisher of Australian Property Journal. My guest today is Benjamin Martin-Henry, Head of Real Assets Research Pacific at MSCI. Welcome back to Australian Property Journal's Talking Property Podcast, Ben. Nelson, it's great to be here as always. Thank you very much for having me. Yes, uh, so a lot has happened as we discuss last year. Um, the Q4 was going to be an interesting period. Mm. So what has happened in the in that quarter? Well, in a nutshell, not a lot really. And that's kind of the story. Mm. Uh, Q4 really did mark the kind of turning point in the market, I'd say. Uh, we always knew that the Q4 was likely to be um, quite slow compared to other quarters, just because of how the year was progressing right. with various interest rate increases and of course the uncertainty that's, that's pervading the market. Um, and that certainly did come to fruition. Um, in terms of overall transaction volumes, they are down around 60-odd percent compared to Q4 wow. last year. Yeah, yeah. so it was, a, it was a real slowdown in, uh, in the second quarter, uh, sorry, in the last quarter. On kind of like an annual basis, the volumes don't look too bad. They're down sort of 25%, which was as expected, mm -hmm. really. Um, I always say that 2021 was effectively 18 months worth of uh, transactions because, of course, 2020, everything really slowed down and, and kind of stopped and a lot of those deals fell into into 2022. So, sorry, 2021. Yeah. So effectively, um, it, looking at 2022 as a whole, it doesn't look that bad, but it's that, really that Q4 number that was quite uh, quite startling in, um, in how slow it was. Mm. And I th uh, what do you think were the factors, to, you know, behind the, uh, obviously we know interest rates is one of them, um, is that the main factor? I think it's certainly, Only? there's there's a whole heap of other issues, of course. There is a lot of uncertainty in how the market mm. is, how the world is you know, uh, playing out at the moment with strong inflation. Obviously, everywhere across the world, Australia's not immune to this. So we have seen pretty high inflation in Australia. Yes. It's around 7.8%, I think it is something that's the last number. Um, and obviously those cash rates, those continual cash rate increases have made, have, has made the cost of debt increase as well, which is naturally going to impact quite heavily on um, transactions as you know you need to fund these things some, somehow and suddenly your cost of debt, debt jumps yes. from say two percent to six percent that's a big that's a big change um and of course yeah. there's all these uncertainties out there you know the atrocities happening in ukraine that's creating a bit more uncertainty in the market and obviously supply chain issues as well so a little bit uncertain so i think there was a real pause by investors just kind of let's let's adopt this wait and see approach and see how the next few months play out before um 2023 comes around and maybe there's a bit more certainty and then we'll start to act on on deal making opportunities. Mm. Well, we've certainly seen so far this year anyway, uh, just in the past week, we've seen Andrew and Nicola Forrest buying the um, the first Waldorf Astoria hotel mm. in Sydney from Len Lisa Mitsubishi. So it seems to be, yeah, there, there are transactions happening yep. already. So those that's one of the big ones that we've obviously seen. Um, now, yeah, but looking at the core markets, um, yeah. when we're dis you know discussing transaction volumes, what's happening there in office, in industrial, and retail? Um, yes. as expected, really big slowdown again. Q4, well, I think offices were down sixty odd percent, industrial sixty odd, retail eighty odd. You know, these are big numbers, big numbers down. 
um, for Q4. Effectively, everything was really down in Q4. Well, on an annual basis, right. um, Office performed the best, probably. Volumes probably pretty much on par, really, with 2021, as I still think global investors in particular still have a view that the office does have a, a place in the future of um, future uh, working environments. It just needs to yeah. evolve a little bit, you know, for every every tenant yes. I talk to that's giving back space, there's a tenant taking more space. So I think I think by and large the office sector still has has a place and still performing relatively well. Um, but the thing with offices as well is like generally with quality offices, if you're paying book mm. value for it, that's a basically a discount. That's a good 10, 15% discount because these quality offices don't trade that yeah. often and there's generally a lot of lot of bidding for it. Um, so if you're able to secure some of these quality offices mm. at book value, you're doing you're doing pretty well. Um, industrial likewise slowed down significantly. That should come as no surprise. Mm -hmm. You just can't keep going on at that at the record pace that we've seen. You know, 2020 was a record year. 2021 doubled that record year. I mean, you'd have to be a pretty pretty uh, intense gambler to, <laughs> to, to bet that industrial was going to double yet again. Um, so nat naturally, that didn't happen, and, and industrial did slow down. Still, at 20 odd billion, it's a pretty strong year for right, a sector yeah. that really sees that kind of number. Um, yeah, look. Pricing was getting toppy, of course, for industrial. Um, not a lot of stock out there either for industrial. Um, although I did hear that there was a lot of stock put on the market yes. if you pass through, but we'll, we'll get back to that later, I'm sure. Um, in terms of retail, look, retail ticks along. Um, I think with retail, it's definitely asset specific and subtype specific. You know, the big shopping centers aren't really selling because mm. sellers, no way will they get what they want for them. Um, because it's not the appetite out there. Whereas some of the smaller ones, you know, large format retail had a pretty good year, neighborhood shopping centers still perform, still perform reasonably well. Yeah. So I think there is appetite there for retail. Um, it's just not, it doesn't seem to be in the in the big space, in those big shopping centers. So again, if they're not selling, then volumes look um, down quite considerably compared to 2021 because we did see some big yeah big well it's it, like with the example. office sector I, I suppose when you talk about that I we ran a story just today on a you know the world's biggest study Cambridge and uh, Boston College and they looked at the four day working week um and, and mm. they found that um you know it actually boosted the company revenue because there were less staff sick they were more productive um so but in that sense, too, in a way, four-day working week is only one day less than what we were, you know, used to before pre-COVID, and that doesn't mean that there's that let you know less demand for office space because you're still going to need the desks for this four-day working week, right? Absolutely. I mean, that's that's kind of the yes. thing with offices, isn't it? I mean, we hmm. we still haven't worked out what the best. Hmm. Uh, mixes in terms of working from home, working from the office. I think a lot of companies are mandating sort of come back three days a week or whatever. Some are like, don't care, do just do your job wherever you are. Yes. Um, but if you are mandating people to come back, say three days a week, generally people come back mm. Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. <laughs> if you have everybody back at work, there's no space. Um, and when you, mm. even pre-COVID, when you lease space, say you have 100 people, you don't lease 100 desks mm. because you know people are going to be off sick, they're going to be out of the office, they're going to be on it annual leave, whatever. So call it 70%. That's probably yes. pretty generous, but call it 70 deaths for those 100 people. Um, but if you're mandating everybody come back, everybody comes to work Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, suddenly you have 100 people for 70 desks. And that appears mm. to be part of this this problem that um, tenants are having at the moment. It's because 
they don't yes. have space to accommodate <laughs> everybody coming back to work. And then, mm. of course, there's this new environment of, I think COVID just gave us more TLAs, more yes. three-letter abbreviations, because we used to have ABW, yes. activity-based working. Now we have TBW, mm. which is team-based working, and EBW, which is event-based working. Floor and for space, those yeah. last mm. two, you need big breakout areas. So you've got two options. You either rip out desks and put these big breakout areas in, or you take another another um, chunk of space. And that, exactly. And that's kind of where this uncertainty around the office market kind of still pervading is, hey, mm. what do we do? How do we, how do we best manage this? And that's why I think investors are still happy to pick up quality offices because sure. the kind of the future of office is still, it's still uncertain, but by and large, we still need offices to work in. And if you, th if you look at this whole, you know, there's always talk about flight to quality and all that kind of stuff during mm. um, slowdowns, but I think it's going to be more exacerbated this time around because of, because of what's been going on, because of the, the health issues that COVID obviously um, made. People want those quality spaces. They want higher amenities. They want cleaners coming in every, every, you know, every couple of hours to clean. And you get that from premium quality offices. You don't get that from C grade and D grade offices. Mm. So tenants are moving to more quality space. And because rents yeah. obviously stalled over the last couple of years, you can get pretty good discounts in some of these A grade and premium towers, and they're pretty full, which means investors are going to be buying those pretty full towers. So yes. again, there's just there's so much flux for the office sector, probably more so than any other sector at the moment. But you know, the kids rolling on. It has been the the core sector. Now, I guess the next one we always talk about is the alternatives. Um, transaction volumes you uh, showed that it's down twenty eight percent across you know the combination of seniors, development, healthcare, pubs, service stations. So what's the uh, you know what's behind that uh, that uh, steep decline? Well, I, I guess, yeah, I suppose relative to the other, to the core sectors, it's not down nearly as much. I mean, like I was saying before, volumes are always going to be down compared to 2021. So I try not to look at look at that in isolation. Um, but actually, student housing was the only alternative asset class to see an increase in volumes. And um, that kind of makes sense as we are expecting to, uh, students to come back to the market, uh, come back to the country. So there was a bit of a boost for, for student housing as well. Um, but I think with the other sectors, they're still performing admirably. It's just there was always going to be that natural slowdown when everybody started to started to pull back. I think pubs is probably the only real exception. Um, it's it is slightly down, but it still had a heck of a year last year. It's really been going great guns, and I I think they finally announced that the Oaks in Neutral Bay in Sydney was sold the other day. I'm not quite sure what the pricing was because the initial pricing was quite low. That was reported, and well, that's well down from what they were expecting. But I think they revised that and said it's actually pretty much on par with what we're expecting. So, so again, it just kind of speaks to that investment in, in the pub sector that it continues to, to roll on. Um, and, of course, one of the big winners out of this whole COVID situation has been self-storage um, because we all kind of realised that, that that second bedroom, we kind of have a, kind of a bed in there as well as a, two, two office chairs, two desks, et cetera. So we all had to ship stuff out and shove it in self-storage. And I, I think Abacus are going to list a self-storage REIT shortly. So that's one that certainly has uh, certainly has boomed. But again, most of these sectors they're they, they're a bit a bit down on 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 2021. But again, absolutely as expected, no real surprise. What will be interesting is to see how they develop over the next 12 months as pricing starts to adjust on those core sectors and yields start to start to move out. Will that mean we'll see continued investment into those alternative spaces 
as pricing adjustment of core sectors and will people go back to the core markets now they're getting decent yield spreads we shall see i mean that's how kind of property markets do develop you start off small and you know it's mostly private investors then you get institutional investors into these alternative sectors and then suddenly they're no longer alternative so we shall see how they develop let's take a short break with a message from our sponsor msci our micro to macro market data and portfolio management tools power more informed decision-making across the investment process. Our real asset solutions enable clients to more effectively identify opportunities, conduct pre-deal due diligence, analyze performance and risk, and build more sustainable multi-asset class strategies. Turning to sort of the, uh, the players in the market or in Q4, um, you know, in terms of foreign investors versus local, and then also, you know, major institutions versus the private, the the, the smaller privates. Um, who were the major uh, investors in? I think you still see the main guys. You know, your Charter Halls, your GICs, your Blackstones. They tend to kind of be the number one buyers in any in any kind of any kind of year, really. Um, I think what mm-hmm. was possibly more interesting was looking at the sell side of last year, really, because a lot of the a lot of the sellers yes. were REITs, a lot of them were listed. Um, down here and mm-hmm. we know they're having to recycle capital because obviously cost of debt has gone up they have to keep below certain gearing levels to maintain or to be part of certain indices that they're benchmarked against so borrowing and obviously borrowing has in, borrowing costs have increased so it was interesting to see just how many of them were actually pretty pretty strong divestors you know you look at stockland dexas mervac lendlease charter hall they're all in the top 10 sellers for last year which is mm. relatively unusual for them. They, particularly Charter Hall, they're not big sellers. They're massive buyers, and they were the number one buyer, as they generally yes. are. Yeah, they've got 88, $88 billion in funds under management. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, and you don't get that by selling your assets all the no. time. So, mm. I mean, it's, it was interesting to see some of these guys in that in that sell column, which I don't we don't traditionally see. And, of course, that's an indicative of the market. You know, they're having to recycle capital. They're having to pay off, redem- pay down redemptions in some in some cases. And, of course, you know, you, we, you can't borrow to pay down redemptions. You have to sell effectively. Mm. So that was an interesting one. And it'll be interesting to see how that does develop. Um, and if you look at what happened back in 2015, the REITs were big buyers of, of property. And, mm. you know, your average hold period for properties around six, six, seven years before you either sell it or you've got to pump a heap of CapEx in to refurb it. So they might be looking to offload some of those assets so they don't have to refurb them. So it could be a big year for sellers. I mean, we shall see. This is obviously all hearsay at the moment. Um, but, yeah, the mix-up last year was quite interesting. And as usual, you've got so much foreign investment coming into the market. Again, US and Singapore, number one, number two sources of offshore capital. Um, so yeah, I mean, normally GIC and Blackstone are two of the larger offshore investors in, in Australia. And I think that kind of bodes well for the market during this you know, this slowdown. Because if you look back in the GFC days, we didn't have so much offshore investment. It was a very small proportion of our market. But this time, since sort of 2015, we've had a lot of offshore investment coming into Australia. It accounts around 30% of commercial property transactions each year. So given that significant weight of capital coming from offshore, it may keep out any kind of price blowouts. It may keep a bit of a lid on those because offshore investors still like Australia as a market to uh, to invest in. I suppose the we're looking at like, you know, yields. Um, you, 
I think they've expanded for another quarter for the core sectors. Um, does mm. this mean that the asset repricing will continue for the you know offices, industrial, retail, etc.? I should I should think so. Mm. Um, <clears throat> looking at valuation, the valuation in the indices that we produce, so the Property Council of Australia MSCI annual direct property index. Yes. Out of the which is based on valuations, out of the 143 subsectors that we were able to publish a cap rate for in Q3 and Q4, only two showed any kind of cap rate compression, okay. and only one was statistically significant, which meant that we saw repricing in 141 subsectors. And those subsectors wow. include, you know, it's office grades, office locations, retail, et cetera, et cetera. So Pricing has has changed. I know it's not necessarily happening as fast as a lot of people seem to seem to want. They mm. seem to think that we should be having massive massive blowouts so that mm. the unlisted market matches the the listed market, but that's not how how property works. Um, but we we certainly have seen um, pricing change. It's not as dramatic as some other countries yet. That's that's fine. We're a different type of market, um, but I suspect it will continue. And if you look at that, I know there's this endless debate between property yields and bond yields and what the relationship is like between those two. And I know our global research team have worked out that there's only an 11% correlation between the two, which is quite low. Um, mm -hmm. But I think given what's, what is driving the change in both sets of yields is that interest rate increase, that cost of debt. I think the relationship is pretty, pretty strong mm -hmm. um, given that the number one, the, the, the most important mover is affecting both of them. Um, I think it's important to look at them together at the moment and that the yield spread between the two is extraordinarily low. It's getting to kind of GFC lows, which is pretty tight. Yes. And I am hearing more conversations from investors about, look, you know, sure, industrial is a good asset, but if, when it's yielding 4% and bonds are yielding 3.8%, one's pretty much risk-free and one is not quite risk-free. Mm. I know where I'm going to be putting my know where I'm going to be putting my money. And those conversations have we haven't had those conversations for a number of years. So the fact that they're starting we're starting to have those conversations mm. means that it's now forming investment decisions. So I can mm. only expect the pricing will have to continue to to push up in order to entice buyers back to the market. Mm. It's interesting because you know obviously we haven't reached the what we say is the peak of the interest rate cycle yet. Um, you know the RBA is saying it probably will be 4.1% is where the peak will be, which is now above what, so, <laughs> which is above, I think last year, the economy, all the economists around Australia were saying, oh, it'll be, it'll peak around 3.5. But now they've had to revise that to 4.1. So no doubt we will see the, you know, yields continue ex to expand to reflect that as, as you pointed out, like, you know, bond yields are 3.8 or whatever like that. So if rates rise to 4.1, no doubt bond yields will rise too, right? Um, so, yep. Can yeah. I assume so? That's generally how, how the market works. And that yeah. really does put it put, put the squeeze on our investors um, for what they pay. And that's kind of going to be the theme this year, I'd say. Mm -hmm. I think we have a few new buzz terms floating around, like price discovery. You know, the first six months of the year is going to be all about price discovery. <laughs> all that means is, this, yeah, no, crazy, isn't it? All that means is that um, effectively you're going to, you need, we're, looking for that middle ground between buyers and sellers, you know, that expectation that sellers still want kind of 2019 prices and buyers are like, nah, -uh, market yeah. changed a fair bit. Our cost of capital has changed a fair bit. We're not paying that. You need to, 
you can sharpen your pencil on some of these prices. I mm. think that's that's going to be that's going to be the case over the next six months, really. Mm. Um, so at the moment, we haven't seen a heap of distressed selling. Like we track it really closely in the RCA platform, particularly in the US, because we have loan information. Mm. Um, so we can work out how you know uh, how loan repayments work and all that. And are there any signs of distress, and therefore the owners have to sell? We haven't seen much, if any, in the US. We certainly haven't seen any down here yet. Um, so, because at the moment this isn't a financial crisis, it's not like yes. GFC. It's more of an it's more of an economic crisis. I wouldn't call it a crisis yet, but they're mm. more economic issues. So there's still people are still quite well capitalized. Um, there's no massive failings in the economy, other than inflation's quite r- running rampant. But that's a cyclical thing that'll start to that'll start to slow, um, adjust itself. So at, at the moment the this still seems like there's a, a reasonable amount of positivity in the market, but buyers simply won't pay what sellers want at the moment. Mm. So until sellers are forced to sell, they won't be selling and buyers won't be paying um, over for what they believe the property is worth anymore. Mm. So now that brings me to this next one, you know, which is something uh, I looked at the MSCI, your data, um, the annual returns, the rolling annual returns. How has that um, asset repricing impacted um, annual rolling returns. Well, I guess that's kind of the kind of the whole story is mm. on an annual basis. You know, total return of what it was six point eight percent positive capital growth. Obviously, income is always positive or generally mm-hmm. always positive. Um, it looks all right. You know, six point eight percent, pretty good. But it's yes. that it's that quarter, quarterly number that's the most important, I believe. Yes. Um, and, and in Q in Q four, capital growth was negative for office, negative for retail, and subsequently mm. negative for all property. So you can really see how last year played out. Um, and to record quarterly negative capital growth is the first time, obviously, since uh, COVID, which we knew was a short term blip. Mm. But prior to that, it's the first time since the GFC that we've recorded um, negative quarterly capital growth. So the market is it is turning. Mm. It is starting to starting to turn, and of course, those are in that index. It's all valuations based, so it does tend to lag transactions. Mm. So we knew that pricing was starting to slow down and starting to push out, um, sort of mid last year, and the valuations were were going going to follow. Mm. And of course, the biggest driver of property performance is capital growth, and the biggest mm. driver of capital growth is transactions, and they all slow down. So it's not wholly surprising that. Um, that we start to see a bit of a slowdown and I would expect that to just continue because again, as we know, valuations lag transactions by about six months. Mm-hmm. So I don't really think we've seen the repricing that will need to happen as a result of a very strong slowdown in Q4. So I can only imagine that's, that's coming. Now for each of the sectors, obviously we always look at uh, the cause plus hotels. What were the, uh, or which sector um, delivered the highest annual return? And which one? Obviously, I think no surprise. Probably retail would be the one lowest. I'm guessing. No, it wasn't actually. It was. Oh, um, okay. Yeah. Office, <laughs> yeah. office was office was the lowest. Yes. Um, but again, there's always caveats to all of these things. Retail has already adjusted. Like I said, it adjusted in 2020, so it's coming off a very yeah. low base. Mm-hmm. So it, it was never going to see very sharp declines. Mm. Whereas the office sector didn't really see that. So the office technically is is the slowest. I recorded the slowest. And your return, right. and like I said before, it also recorded a negative capital growth for the quarter. Mm. So, and actually, non uh, so non CBD offices recorded a negative capital growth the whole year. So, wow. it is happening. Pricing is is adjusting, and performance mm. is adjusting. I think one of the interesting ones is industrial. 
Mm -hmm. um, it's a kind of a question I've been posing to people. Industrial was the best performing asset class last year. It's fine, you know, growth of 13% or whatever it was. Yes. You know, you'd take that, you'd take it to the, you'd run with that to the bank at the moment um, because it's, it's pretty good. But it is a very steep slowdown considering 12 months prior returns were above 30%. So they've more than halved, yeah, yeah, more than halved in 12 months. So my question to people at the moment is, what do you think is going to be the best performing asset class in 2022? Mm. Most people still kind of going with industrial. I'm like, okay, what do you think is going to show the sharpest slowdown in 2023? Again, mm. it's industrial. Mm. It could record the highest return, but it's also going to show the steepest slowdown because um, it's coming off such a high base. So all property sectors were showing a slowing pace of growth, i.e. they recorded a lower number in Q4 than it did in Q3, with the exception of hotels, which again, is coming off an extraordinarily low base because of the massive correction in, in 2020. So hotels actually looks pretty good. It's the only number going up at the moment. Mm. So how long that lasts, I guess, is the, is the question. Um, but even the healthcare sector, we've seen a slowdown in that, yeah. in that space too. Again, it's coming off a high base. It was always going to happen. I guess the question is how long do these slowdowns happen for and do these slowdowns turn into downturns? Mm -hmm. That's kind of the question at the moment. Um, and all that is so dependent on what happens in the economy at the moment. It's interesting, the healthcare sector, because, you know, we've been, it's one of those things that we um, keep talking about that Australia requires, you know, more healthcare assets and mm. medical centres, et cetera. So... <clears throat> um, uh, what happens next? And we've now seen a lot of institutions, of, particularly last year, you know, launch into the the sector, or over the last eighteen months, really launch into the sector. Um, yes, uh, it will be uh, where that healthcare market, or oh, sorry, sector, uh, how that performs, will be. Um, yeah, something to watch in twenty twenty three. Absolutely. I've, I mean, I've never seen a headline in a newspaper saying, we have enough healthcare. We don't need to build any more. <laughs> Unless, I mean, I don't work in yeah. media as much as you do, Nelson, obviously, but I'm, I'm pretty sure there hasn't been a headline saying something like that. No, so no. I was going to need, yeah. I, I, I think, so. yeah, well, particularly for medical centres, uh, if you look everywhere, yeah. I, I, I now have three family GPs because um, every time I try and book a GP, it's two weeks out. I, I I can't get in even yeah. as an existing. So, yeah, I now have three GPs across where I live. Family, oh. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, this is the, yeah. the demand for healthcare is not going to stop. Um, Precisely, aging population, increasing population, all that kind of stuff. So it's only going to continue to 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 boom. And I hear mm. from investors there's a real FOMO, fear of missing out, when some of these quality assets come on the market that it keeps keeps pricing quite high mm. because oh, this doesn't trade very often. Let's let's pile into it. Let's get into it. Mm, so mm. it's a good it's a good sector to be in it's going to it's going to fluctuate with the market of course that's how economic cycles work it's how you know the economic cycle and property cycle is so strongly linked mm. um but it's still a pretty it's it's a pretty solid um solid asset class second only to industrial over the last last three to five years which is pretty good going considering the, the crazy returns that industrial have been um have been recording over the last few years mm. Let's take a short break with a message from our sponsor, MSCI. Our micro to macro market data and portfolio management tools power more informed decision making across the investment process. Our real asset solutions enable clients to more effectively identify opportunities. 
conduct pre-deal due diligence, analyze performance and risk, and build more sustainable multi-asset class strategies. Now, the next one we want to now look at is the, uh, you know, real direct assets um, versus listed. Um, the MSCI mm-hmm. data shows that real assets have significantly outperformed their listed counterparts. So yeah, it's what's happening? a topic of endless <laughs> debate at the moment, isn't it? You know, you can't open a newspaper without some, someone complaining that the unlisted sector is not doing their job, which is, yeah. you know, that's just simply not, that's just not how it works. Hmm. Um, yeah, last year was fascinating. So industry was the best performing asset class, unlisted asset class at sort of 7% capital growth, whereas hmm. industrial REITs were the worst performing REITs at sort of minus 35 Mm. Um, percent price growth. So it, it, bookends there. So it is quite it is quite fascinating how how that works. Um, but that's kind of the point of unlisted um, property is that it's not subject to volatility and fluctuations in sentiment, whereas obviously listed markets are. Mm. Um, I'm sure there's <clears throat> again the debate can be endless about why this is why this is the case, and I'm, we're not going to solve this issue and we're not going to end this debate. No. But that's simply how how property has worked over. Uh, forever really that you, you kind of remove that fluctuation um, and all that speculation now does that mean that industrial REITs are priced correctly and does that mean that industrial unlisted assets are priced correctly I mean again after debate you'll probably want to sit some I mean the return should probably sit somewhere in the middle really mm. um, which is why I would expect to see a, a continuing slowdown in that pace of industrial growth I have no idea if it's going to turn negative it's a pretty solid asset class at the moment mm. um, but the industrial REITs, I mean, that was one, it was kind of just one big correction, wasn't it, sort of at the start of 2022. And then they kind of just continued along their merry way, um, didn't really gain anything, didn't really lose anything. But they've had a decent start to the year as well. So, I mean, it's, yeah, it's it's a tricky one. Um, but property simply does not reprice that quickly. It can't, whereas REITs obviously reprice every single day. Mm-hmm. So yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they're they're always subject to any kind of whim and, and speculation and uncertainty, whereas it simply doesn't happen in the unlisted space. Yeah, so, yeah. Kind of, kind of the benefit of investing in property, really. <laughs> yeah, but you're right, though. It, you know, when we look at the listed sector, it it follows the uh, the ASX 200. It follows the market direction. Um, when there's no, you know, sort of investors want to cash out, you're going to see. A, uh, a dip. We've seen that in the tech sector, you know, how they've mm. performed, um, how Apple, you know, just looking at America, how Apple prices, Facebook price um, and, and all that and Google's, you know, share price and all that is, has underperformed um, as we've seen the market change. So, um, yeah, and, and listed, unfortunately, listed REITs have to um, go with the direction of the market flow. And that's it. I mean, mm. that's that's exactly it. And if you look at what happened when COVID struck, you mm. saw industrial REITs absolutely boom. Mm. You saw industrial assets absolutely boom, but not to the same degree. Mm. But conversely, you saw office REITs plummet and retail REITs plummet, but the property, the, un- the, um, the unlisted property that was driving the REITs mm. didn't fall nearly sharply. So you kind of, it, it's kind of those two stories on the, with direct property, you won't get the strong, the significant outperformance mm. with the REITs, but you won't get the underperformance either. Mm. So, I mean, you kind of have to balance it out. You can't have 
or is it kind of your cake and eat it? So you're going to get <laughs> yes. either the defensive nature of property, but you won't mm. get the significant outperformance, or you pile into REITs and get the significant outperformance, but you also risk getting the significant underperformance as well. Mm. Mm. Now, turning to the next one is um, I saw, you know, in one of the presentations, did you discussed about the pricing gap indicator? Do you want to tell our listeners mm. what this measure is? It's a terrible name. Firstly, <laughs> price expectations gap indicator. There's too many yes. syllables in there for me, to, for me to roll that out all the time. <laughs> um, it's a new piece of analysis that we're doing in, in across um, across my team in, at MSCI. Yes. Um, it's based on some some methodology um, from some uh, Dutch academics done a few years ago, and it effectively what we're looking for. Now, this isn't this isn't a forecast or anything like that. So I'm definitely not giving investment advice here. Mm-hmm. But the idea is t- to look at. Um, it, it aims to quantify the gap between buyer and seller expectations. Now, the whole point of it is to work out the magnitude of price change required to restore liquidity to long-run averages. So effectively, what we're trying to work out is if offices, office sales were to get back to their long-term average levels of liquidity, what do prices need to adjust by? Right. And that's looking at... Um, an estimation of demand and supply curves and, and based on how often each property trades and, and at what price, et cetera. So again, the idea is to work out what we need to adjust by to get back to those long-term levels of liquidity. Mm. And it's kind of working out well at the moment in, in our analysis because um, offices, Sydney offices, for example, we think that gap is around 7%. Now, offices had a very low Q4. Yes, and if we look at if we look at some of the assets that traded within the the direct index, we have the sale price and the valuation price as well, and the previous valuation. Offices were trading around a one percent discount to book value. Right. So, by our estimation, they should be trading at around seven percent, eight percent discount to book value to get investors back into the market. Okay. Again, kind of holds yep. up. Mm-hmm. And if you look at industrial for Sydney industrial, it appears from the price expectations gap indicator that. Buyers are still willing to pay around eight percent above book. Sorry, buyers will. Oh, buyers are still willing to pay around eight percent above book value, and that will bring industrial sales back to long-term averages. And again, right. if you look at the direct index, look at the mm. gap, look at the sale price versus book value. We have seen that industrial assets are still commanding a twenty-one percent premium to book value. Now, mm-hmm. not a lot of not a um a lot of industrial assets sold in Q4 as well. Um, and looking at that gap, it was probably around 15%, but by and large, still a still pretty healthy premium to book value, which is kind of what that gap indicator is, is saying as well, is that buyers are still happy to pay above book value to secure industrial assets. So that's going to be the most fascinating one over the next next six to 12 months, really, to see how that industrial line changes. I'd expect mm. offices to continue to kind of slow down a little bit and, and buyers will be wanting a, a significant discount to book value, particularly in the lower end. Mm. Um, I don't think we're going to have enough transactions to really pull this out just by by office grade. That might be a little bit too far fetched because we're only, you know, we don't have, we just don't have that level of transactions in this market. You do on the US, for example, we do on the US quite often and look at mm. these different uh, different subclasses. And definitely, people are obviously spending more on, on premium offices. Um, but it's just like I say, it's just a new bit of analysis we're looking at to try and kind of quantify that that gap because we all talk about this gap between buyers and sellers, but everyone's like, well, what's yes. the gap? Like, well, I don't know the gap. Um, so, so we're trying to trying to work it out. Um, so it is, it is interesting at the moment, but so far it seems to hold true looking at what has sold and for how much. 
I hope mm. that it'll just continue continue to hold true, and I'll talk about it more. <laughs> yes, yes, no. Uh, um, I, I think so. In that sense, you're saying that office uh, is that suggesting that office is overpriced and industrial is still underpriced. I, yep. I looking at mm-hmm. the results, it does suggest that yes, offices are overpriced. Okay. And that they, in order to get liquidity back to more long-term averages, mm-hmm. office prices need to adjust a bit more. And that is exactly what we're hearing in the market. And that's exactly what's happening, really. Yes. Some, you know, some offices that were on the market last year, quality offices, some of the best yeah. offices in Australia simply didn't, didn't sell mm. because that gap was too, was too high mm. between what sellers were willing to accept and what buyers are willing to pay. Whereas industrial, again, there were there was a fair amount that, that was on the market and, and didn't trade. It's true. Um, that was always going to be the case, I guess, when pricing got that, that toppy. But still, by and large, investors were happy to pay above. Well, happy is probably the wrong word, isn't it? I'm, I'm not sure they were happy to pay above <laughs> what it was worth. <laughs> but they were, I should say, willing. They were willing, willing. to pay above yeah. what, what the previous book value was in order to secure, again, quality quality assets. And this analysis is not going to tell the whole story. It's just telling part of a story because obviously if you're putting poor stock on the market, um, you know you're not going to get what you want for it. So you probably wouldn't put it on the market. Mm. So arguably for offices, the gap could be higher. It could be sort of 15%. Maybe for industrial, the gap will be lower, sort of around that 2 or 3%. But again, this is just, it's not telling the whole story. It's telling part of a story. And mm. all we can do at the moment is look at these indicators to see what's going on. Um, but I think, they kind of tell the right story that everything's slowing down and people aren't willing to pay as much as they used to. Mm. I think, um, you know, just before we close out this uh, podcast, we haven't discussed this at all or mentioned this. And I'm, I'm actually quite surprised by this <laughs> bill to rent. <laughs> I can't believe we didn't even mention that word at the beginning. Uh, this I know. Is the first time we've mentioned this in, the, in this entire podcast. What's I happening think we like to screen? finish on a high. Yeah, we do. We do. We love build to rent. Everyone's talking about it. Um, I think it is. Now I'm actually talking about it tomorrow at a conference. So <laughs> yeah, it is. Uh, it certainly is happening. Yeah. I mean, we, yeah, we don't have any transaction evidence for for build to rent yet, of course, mm-hmm. because we just don't have enough trades because then we don't have enough stabilized assets. But the good news is we do now have stabilized assets, and so we have a number that are that are currently trading. Mm. which is which is good um i've heard anecdotally that some of these are getting sort of 15 to 25 percent premiums on on market rents depending on the the unit size Mm. um so it is continuing to happen i think i read this morning briefly that sentinel are looking at really ramping up their pipeline in in australia for Mm. for built rent yes so Again, it's, it's like I said all those years ago when I first started looking at it, it was about seven years ago, but built around, <laughs> will, it will come to Australia. It's, yes. It should work in Australia. I can't see why it wouldn't work in Australia when it works everywhere else in the world. Mm. Um, it's just people need to get a bit more confident, confidence around the financial metrics because it is, it really is a pure property play, which is like it's going back to basics. It's all about that, that income return, a very mm. steady, stable income return, um, which I think is... Look, it's probably it's probably a good time to get into it at the moment because I think the the era of cap rate compression driving value increases in property, it's kind of over for mm. at least now. Looking at these numbers, it certainly has um, certainly has disappeared. We've mm. kind of brought to an end one of the longest cap rate compression cycles we've ever seen across across property. 
effectively dating back to the GFC. I know there's a little tiny blip in, in 2020 when yields went up, you know, 0.1 or something. So a bit of a rounding error. Mm-hmm. Um, but we have seen the market has has turned and it's all gonna it's gonna be all about the income return, all about that income um, income play, which is exactly what Bill Turin is. It's just yeah. about income. Yeah. So yeah. and people I think we'll start to, to see <laughs> Oh, look, precisely, you know, as I always say, in good times people need places to live, in bad times people need places to live, people always need places to live. And similar to healthcare, we really do we see if ever a, a, a newspaper headline that says, All good. We don't need any more resi. We just don't <laughs> see that, particularly particularly rental. And what are vacancies around around you now? It's sort of sub one percent. It yeah, is. It is. Yeah, pretty, Sydney's under Sydney's tight, record it? low, and I think it, last figures came out was zero point nine or something. So, yeah. uh, but across that's Australia, pretty, pretty it is low. under one percent. Uh, uh, the average across nationally. Yeah. So that just goes to oh, show. Exactly. Mm. Yeah, so, and we've seen some significantly sharp increases in rents uh, over the last. Well, last year, over the last 12 months, really, we're talking yes. sort of 4 or 5% increases in rent as on average. So you can imagine in some parts of the of Sydney, Melbourne and, and other capital cities that those rental increases are significantly sharper. Mm. So it's it's not, I'm going to say it's perfect storm for built to rent, but this is exactly what built to rent is, is kind of for. It's just to bring yet more rental accommodation into the, into the market. Into the market. Mm. So that can surely only be a good thing for, for society. Mm. We have more places for people to to rest their heads at night without fear of it being sold out from under them. As well. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Well, that's a good way to end our new 2023 podcast, Ben. Thank you very much oh. for joining me, and hopefully we'll have you back soon. Already. I know. I know. Well, <laughs> Actually, I as we record this podcast, two months have. To, we've already. This is. We're, we're approaching the end of February as we report, we report this podcast. So a bit late that's two time, months gone already. Yes. That's two I know. months gone already. Well, I we look only forward have 10 to months the next left. podcast and see how the market <laughs> has changed, what new things have, have come come to us. Well, they're always the podcast. market's always surprising us. So it's a good thing. I know, it's weird, isn't it? That's good, yeah. Stuff's always happening. Always, always good to, to talk and um, uncover new, new gems. Yes, yes. I look forward to our next discussion. Thank you very much, Ben. Anytime, Nelson. Talk to you soon. Take care. You too.